Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Chris, where are we? We're at White Cube Gallery on Bermondsey Street, not far from the FT's offices in London. I arrived here on the 3rd of January, the first thing I did getting back to work after the Christmas holidays. I was here to meet one of the great artists working in Britain today. The gallery wasn't, wasn't open to the public. I was led through the main reception area into a backstage sort of space. Um, it's full of sculptures and paintings and huge works of art being ferried around um, a vast, vast double-height space. And from there into a smaller room where lots of canvases were propped up against the walls, facing out so I could see them. Their pictures, some very figurative, some more abstract, all, or mostly all, of nude women. And their self-portraits by the artist Tracy Emin, who I was there to talk to for today's episode. It can be quite intimidating doing an interview, exciting but intimidating as well, particularly when this is someone whose work you love and have loved for a while. And Tracy can be quite a blunt person to meet, quite direct. It can also be tricky to react to something, to a work of art in real time, when the artist is there in front of you, scrutinising your reaction. It's a bit like opening a Christmas present in front of the person who gave it to you. I was, wondering, I was thinking you're not impressed at all or anything. <laughs> but this is the situation I found myself in for today's episode. Welcome to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the FT. I'm Grizz, a commissioning editor on the Arts Desk. And I'm Al, the food and drink editor. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about the Oscars. Do they actually mean anything? And who do we think should win? And with the first Freeze Art Fair in Los Angeles on this weekend, we speak to an FT documentary maker, Juliet Riddle, who's just come back from shooting a film with a local artist who's showing at Freeze LA. But before we get to that, let's return to Grizz and Tracy Emmett. OK, so... After looking at the paintings which were waiting to be hung for her show, I sat down with Tracy Emin and I asked her about something she said, which is that whereas recent works of hers have been about sex, these works are much more about loss. This show's called A Fortnight of Tears and I've had that title for about 20 years and I've always wanted to use it. And then now, at this moment in my life, I know exactly what A Fortnight of Tears is. It says, I can't cry for more than a fortnight. When my mum died, I couldn't stop crying. But after two weeks, there was no more tears left. And to me, it's kind of um, poignant right now in my life to talk about loss and feel loss. So a lot of this show, even the more raunchier pictures, actually there isn't that many even, everything is a kind of sadness to it in a way, on a grand scale. 
So crying as a kind of catharsis. Yeah, totally. Like art is a cathartic act for me as well. And I kind of went off that idea for a long time. Kind of like wanted to be kind of like superior to the act of what I do, which is really stupid. Um, I think that's a learning phase. As you grow up, you sort of like in denial about what you are. And now I've really come to terms with what I am and who I am at the moment and what I do and how I respond to it. And painting is brilliant because it is so cathartic. It's all in the action for me. And there aren't many painters now in the 21st century that are action painters. They paint intellectually, they paint conceptually, you know, they don't paint emotionally, and they'd be embarrassed if they did. But I just want to hell with it. I don't care how embarrassing it is. I don't care what people think of me at this moment in my life. I have to get all this stuff out. That's really interesting because, in a way, people, when they look at your work that's known to be, you know, confessional, famously your bed, people, you know, what people said about that was that you were turning your life into art. But when we walked around the show just now and I saw these paintings where loss and that kind of visceral pain of losing something somebody that to me is as confessional as anything that you've made before do you, do you feel that the works are becoming more personal well, it's really good that you bring the bed up because i'm going to be doing a really big show in oslo next year at the new monk museum and um they really wanted me to like kind of do a, uh, a retrospective and i just said no i'm not doing a retrospective i'm the wrong age in my life to do a retrospective you know, you do it in your 30s or you do it in your 70s, 80s. Don't do it now in your prime of making all this galvanised work. And I said, but I think if I can, I will show the bed because the bed for me is the closest thing that I have to the works in that room because I stained that bed. I cried in that bed, shit in that bed, I fucked in that bed, probably vomited in that bed, everything, you know, that that bed is in those paintings as well because when I paint sometimes I'm really angry sometimes I'm kind of remorseful it is an expression of me and that's why I'm really enjoying it that's why I'm so happy in my life now with what I'm doing so it's about it's about coming to terms with what kind of artist I am the response that I have to my work why I'm an artist and firstly it's it's for me to resolve something within myself and the anger that I have in myself and the sadness and the regret that I have in myself at my age now is so powerful that if I'm not smashing it out on a canvas if I'm not like throwing paint everywhere if I'm not drawing like some demonic banshee then I'm not doing the right thing and that intense anger and rage and hurt does that stem from childhood and adolescence? No, I think it might have started in the womb, you know, with me. And I think my childhood was so peculiarly messy and strange and so dysfunctional. It's like, well, how sad can I be? I have to fight it. And a lot of people in my situation have to fight that kind of thing. There's a general consensus that you have to be like everyone else. Otherwise you're strange, or otherwise you're weird. Well, maybe you're not like everyone else. And maybe... You know, what you have to fight is not to try and be like other people, but really fight to be yourself. And that's what I'm doing now. That's what I'm processing, and that's what I'm doing with my work. That's what it's about. So when you say that's what you're doing now, do you feel like now you're processing something that wasn't processed before, that was 
pent up in some too way. right. <laughs> I wasn't dealing with it at all. I was just completely, I don't know what planet I was on. Because it, it would seem to the outsider that you were dealing with it, but in I that wasn't. you were being revelatory. No, I wasn't. I was just touching the surface because I wasn't dealing with my inner self. And I, and I haven't been going to some shrink or some guru and talking about this stuff. This is Tracy sitting in France in a studio on her own, working and painting and having to resolve. And, and also with my mum dying, I really had to really think about life and the fact that I don't have children, I don't have a partner, I don't have any of those things. I never, I haven't had for you know nearly 20 years now, seriously. And for me, coming to, and I have to work out why I'm alone, not lonely, but why I am alone. What I'm saying is I've worked out what my priorities are in my life. Art is my lover, art is my husband, art is my partner. Art has never let me down. When I've been at my lowest ebb, crying and sobbing my heart out, within that fortnight of tears, the thing that comes and picks me up and holds me and cradles me is art. And that's what's really important. And whether or not you're sitting at your kitchen table doing watercolours on your own or whatever it is, knowledge of knowing in your heart, I am an artist, that is enough that will keep you going through, through everything. And so it seems like what you're saying is that this sense of growing as an artist and dealing with things through your art has happened as a process. Do you think that would have been easier had you not been so famous so young? Like, does that make it harder? Yeah, I think, I'm not feeling sorry for myself at all. I've had a brilliant, fun life. But I think, you know, Tracy, the first person to arrive, the last person to leave, reputation, has not really helped my art career at all. But in a strange way, it's kind of helped my art because I've slowly grown into the kind of artist I want to be. It wasn't handed to me on a plate. I've had to really work for it. You know that thing, you know, how would you write a letter to your younger mm. self? Oh, my God. You know... <laughs> I, How would you write a letter to your younger self? I'd actually probably grab hold of me and like, you know, give me a few slaps on the face and say, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing? Like, you know, like that thing about when that school report, you know, if she concentrated more and didn't waste time, she could be the top of the class. That stuff... That's what it's like for me now. I just realised how much time I've wasted and how much time I've abused in my life. And I regret that deeply. When I could have been doing this, I'm talking about what was within me. So when you say I could have been doing this, all that time that you feel like you wasted, do you mean, like, specifically the painting and drawing? Which yeah, just it, painting. In the last decade, we've seen so much more of. I lacked confidence in a way... I had, on one level, I had a searing amount of confidence, but in another level, I didn't have any because I was coming from a different background, a different place. You know, I just left the Royal College of Art, which was probably, I mean, it was two of the most unhappy years of my life in my 20s. I mean, it was like, I just felt such an outsider, right. you know? I just, I just realised when I got there that being an artist was going to be so immensely difficult for someone like me. You know, it was already difficult for me to get into somewhere like the Royal College of Art. Do so, you mean like it was posh, it was male, yeah. it was old? It, what, you, what made you feel like an outsider? You said it. <laughs> you know, it really was. It really was mm. male-dominated. It really was like a different time of history. You know, a lot of the things that were acceptable then there would never be acceptable now in any establishment, in any art school. So I, was, I felt like I was sort of kind of like a working-class female mascot when I was there. 
Like, I was the to- a token mm. person, which I was, but hey, at least I got in and made the most of it. And also, I, when I was at the Royal College of Art, I realised that, that what kind of artist I didn't want to be, which was very important. I wanted to be an artist who communicated to everybody. And I've done it the long way around, but I do, and my work does. You know, the last show I had here, we had 45,000 visitors in three weeks. And I think it was something like 70% of those were people under the age of 25. And what do you think it is about your work that speaks to people? Is it the emotional, the directness of it? Yeah. It's, it's easy to understand. I'm mm. not, not going to... I can talk and intellectualise about my work and explain things on many different levels. I don't have to. It's, it's about people looking and relating. And if you have a painting called The Abortion Waiting Room, you haven't got to be Einstein to understand what that is about with two figures sitting on two chairs before and after. Sounds so basic. But, yeah, it isn't. Because when did you last see a painting like that? Never. So, I mean, these are self-portraits, but they're also not explicitly you. They're, they're sort of abstracted in some way. Yeah, because I'm abstracted. As I've got older, I don't have the presence that I used to have with myself, even. When I, if I see myself in the mirror, I think, is that me? It's like a ghost walking past. Is, is that all me? And I think as we get older, some of us is leaving all the time, so maybe that's why our character becomes more dominant and more intense because we're trying to hold on to ourselves while we're here but I definitely think part of me floats off somewhere totally so some of these nudes are they almost like a memory yeah they are and and also some of them are I don't know so much here but you know I've done a whole series of paintings of my mum dying literally my mum dying that's probably the toughest most like emotional show I've ever done and when I did those paintings it was like I realised, you know, which probably led on to this show, definitely, you know, about loss. Did you paint them while she was alive or no, did you paint them after? No, she died. From memory, yeah. yeah. Was that part of the grieving process? Yeah, definitely. And I tried to stay away from saying that my work was cathartic and all that kind of stuff. I tried to move away because it's something embarrassing. It's weak. It's so weak to be like that. But last year I've been privileged to be able to really look into all of Edvard Munch's archive. And when you are looking at someone's body of work that closely, who you deeply admire, and you see how honest they were within, in their emotions as a man in the 19th century, you think, oh, come on, you can do it. It doesn't matter if it's embarrassing. It doesn't matter if it's shameful. It's true. And it's like all the Me Too things that have been happening. Like, it's really brilliant. I'm really pleased that women are really shouting out and saying things now and coming to the foreground and not being afraid. I've been doing it all my life. Mm. And I can show you reviews where they say Tracy Emin is screaming again about rape and this and that. Of course I'm screaming about rape. Of course I'm screaming about abortion. Of course I'm screaming and shouting about being treated by shit by men. Of course I am. Why shouldn't I be? Why wouldn't I be? So well, the yeah, mood has yeah. shifted now. Yeah, and now I'm not so much like a screaming banshee. I'm actually taken, I think now, recently, I've been taken a lot more seriously from my views on things because being a woman and doing what I do, which is predominantly was a man's world, and especially the world of painting. Is and especially the world of painting yeah. naked women, nudes. And not just naked women, 
painting, full stop, very gestural, figurative. It is definitely still a man's world, you know, because you've got to be pretty strong to do that stuff. Do you think that some of the solidarity that we that is expressed now for like women who have suffered abuse and suffered terrible things at the hands of men, could you have done with some of that solidarity at the time, do you think? It's not even solidarity. I could have just had, instead of being the enemy number one, it would have been just nice if I didn't have to have been, like, I was, like, wrong, mm. you know? What I feel now is that I'm, I don't have to fight. There is no battle. There is no fight. So now I can just breathe and get on with what I have to do. I'm not having to defend and shield my, my spot anymore mm. or, or just shield myself enough so that I can just survive. I am surviving. Very well, thank you. And now I just get on with what I've got to do. But I do feel that there's sometimes a thing about confessional work that, as a society, we're a bit more comfortable with men talking about things like that. No, we're not. Because (laughs) men aren't aren't saying anything on the level that I'm saying. Mm. When men start talking, getting down to the nitty-gritty and talking on my level, I'm telling you, people would, first of all, really listen and secondly, be quite shocked. And talking about Mm. the shock of art now also, I think people aren't shocked by what I'm doing because they understand I'm not doing it to shock. I'm an an older middle-aged woman. I'm not trying to shock. I've been in the public eye for a long time. I've been doing what I've been doing for 30 years. And people understand now that I'm not some sort of crazy young thing trying to get headlines. This is what I do. More recently, though, it seems to be becoming very clear that love and a kind of romanticism is really at the centre of your work. Do you think that's right? Love and romanticism is the centre of my life. (laughs) It's what I think about nearly all the time. Would you say you're a romantic? Yeah, really romantic. If I wasn't so romantic, I'd probably be having sex. But I don't want to have sex. I want love. And I'm greedy. Love is greed. You know, to want and desire love. I want love. To love on demand. I don't, you know, to say that is, you know, some people start off with sex and it builds up to love, maybe. But not for me. I'd rather be alone, definitely. It seems like your work is becoming more ambitious. I mean, the bronzes are on a huge scale. Years ago, I used to think that the big, giant bronze was just so macho. And it is so macho because it's big, giant, macho men making them. And when I started working in bronze, I was making little things that were like two inches high or an inch high, these tiny little things. And I've got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've been doing it now, I know, it's like, I think, 10 years or whatever. And now I'm on three metres. My next thing is nine metres. So if size is ambition then, yeah, I'm really I'm the most ambitious I've ever been in my life. But if age and understanding of what you can do and your own capabilities is ambition, then, yeah, I'm also very ambitious now. I'm worried about running out of time. Time is really important because I know how much time I've wasted. Can you see your work ever taking a completely different direction? Do you feel like what you're doing is kind of mining the self and these themes of love and loss. I I know this is the only way you can take another direction, is that I'm about 70, I take up Tai Chi and yoga and meditation 
And I go, oh my God, how could I wasted so much of my life and not done Tai Chi earlier? <laughs> and I become some sort of grand Tai Chi master at the age of 80. And between the age of 80 and my death of 104 or something, you know, how I paint is I spend like six months having the most amazing, primed, beautiful gesso canvas that's absolutely immaculate. It takes six months just to make the right surface. I hang the painting up paintings around maybe six foot by six foot square and I sit on the floor in my lotus position I have my sacred beautiful little Japanese ceramic bowl that's 2,000 years old or something and I have my amazing sable brush that's really the most fantastic hair and I have the most incredible red pigment and I stir this red pigment and I meditate and meditate and meditate and then I just stand in one movement I have my brush and then I just hit it at the canvas and I have the perfect red line through the middle. And I'll be quite old when I do that. Wow. (laughs) Can't wait to see it. Yeah, me too. So, Chris, I, I really liked that interview. It was it felt very personal. I thought she was very frank about herself. You talked about her being blunt, but I mean, above all, it's a, she has a sort of emotional honesty, like her work is. It's it feels she's not afraid to sort of frankly um, expose herself to an audience in some way. No, no. And actually, sometimes that kind of directness, um, particularly from an interviewee when you're a journalist, is quite disarming because it's unusual. And Tracy Emin as a, as a Tai Chi master, that's, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? She is wonderfully eccentric. And I wonder if that's something that people sometimes overlook about her. Did You talked before the interview about you know feeling a bit nervous because, to use your word, you said she, she can be blunt. Um, mm. Do you think that is defensive? Did yeah. she seem defensive with you? At first, yeah. And then she was and then she was really sweet. There's something very tender and sweet and quite vulnerable actually about her. Um she you know some some adults have a childlike sort of aura about them and a kind of sense that they kind of see the world in a certain way and are sort of full of wonder and full of excitement about things. It's not naivety because Tracy Hepman's sort of seen and done everything. It's it's a it's a funny quality that I think she has. She's vulnerable and yet she's tough. She mm. she's she is full of contradictions. I think. Do do you do you feel like you relate to her? I think. Well, I mean, clearly we have and have had very different lives, and I'm you know twenty five years younger than her. She, her upbringing com- completely different to mine. Mine has been a life of comparatively huge privilege, and the kind of chaos and precariousness of of Tracy's early life, I, I didn't know. So, but yet, her art has such kind of universality that she makes her her experience relatable. I think you, you get to, it when you the, see it. Relating to the art is obviously different to relating to the person. Yeah, and, and I hope that we can relate to people who are different to us. I mean, particularly also when you're speaking about something which I find very refreshing in her work, which is the way that she paints what seems 
it feels to me like a kind of female experience. You know, she paints kind of bleeding and bodies and, you know, you don't see that very often. Like she said herself, there aren't lots of paintings hanging in the National Gallery about abortion. This is something quite refreshing and maybe that's a way in which I felt sort of quite connected to her. So you love this work and you love the show particularly. You wrote up the interview beautifully for the paper. Below the line, there was criticisms of her. Why do you think that she attracts... Why do you think she sort of polarises her audience like this? I mean, you know what? I still don't really know, and I've got different theories about what she represents. Is it the way that she speaks? She says that people are rude about her accent and often mock it. Is it a kind of sexism? Is it a class snobbery? Maybe it's lots of those things. You know, that's her as a person. People also say that she can't paint, although I do think the response to this show, and definitely my feeling about it, is that it kind of puts that to bed once and for all. So meeting her this time and and seeing the new work... How, how did you feel when you when you left? You, you've met her before and you've interviewed her before. Was, had anything changed? I had the same love of her work. But the last time I interviewed her was before Me Too and before the kind of current moment. And she herself brought Me Too up in the interview. It was on my list of questions, but she preempted it. And I was thinking about it afterwards. She was sort of 20 years or more ahead of this moment she was speaking about this stuff before it was something that the wider conversation um, was interested in and now we've caught up with her and this is her moment this show is why she's an important artist now it's why she's relevant she's kind of in paintings giving voice to all this experience which now suddenly we're all hearing we're all interested in So now we're joined by a documentary maker here at the FT, Juliet Riddle. Juliet, you've just got back from LA where you've been making a new film for the FT. Tell us about it. Well, I wanted to make a film to build excitement for the Freeze art fair, but I didn't want to make a film in an art fair because that'd be boring. So decided that actually the best way of understanding the context of the fair was through an artist and through the city itself. And I found Martine Sims, who at only 30 has already had solo shows at MoMA, and was really interested to talk to me about transport, which I thought sounded deadly dull, until she explained it a little more and actually sounded fundamental to the culture of LA. My name is Martine Sims and I'm an artist based in Los Angeles. I also grew up here, which is a rarity. I went out there and I spent three days with Martine and it was fascinating. Freeze is coming to LA and it's going to be on the Paramount lot. And most people, part of their experience of the fair will be their experience of getting to the fair by car, most likely. Even though I'd heard about the dominance of the car in LA, just seeing how it impacted on the art scene and the way that people behaved to each other was surprising. I heard so many times people tell me that living in LA was really solitary and that there was no real way that people interacted in public spaces. And as someone who's lived all my life in London, I found that really sad. I also was surprised that all the artists that we met through the film really did feel that this culture of sort of isolated communities and distinct areas being so separated from each other had really impacted 
on their work. So the culture of driving here, it dramatically affects like the way people relate to each other and your sense of self, the way you understand yourself, because you spend hours in a car, in a metal box, by yourself. My work is mostly about making films, which is sort of a capturing of movement primarily. In addition to like making videos and having these video installations, it's kind of looking at film, television, media, and what it does to us. I move around a lot, and it, it makes me think about how our environments and these kind of infrastructures uh, influence us, and, and how they are a way of creating culture. It's like a, a it, it's like a conditioning. So there's a parallel I see between the way that I navigate the city and my kind of understanding. I'm basically like moving through space and a kind of time. There's like a narrative or there's something sort of unfolding all day. But at the same time, there's all these kind of social and economic and political realities that can be discovered through that. Like the reason that LA is so car dependent didn't just happen, it was a concerted effort. That was an excerpt from Juliet's film, which is called L.A. in Motion. The artist Martin Sims, who you heard, is one of many appearing at the Freeze Art Fair in L.A., Freeze's first art fair on the West Coast. It's at Paramount Pictures Studios this weekend, February 15th to 17th. And you can watch the film on the FD's website and read all of our coverage from Freeze. OK, so since we're in La La Land, we're joined now by Raf Abraham, who writes about film, to discuss the Oscars. Raf, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Al. So the Oscars are brewing. Not everyone is excited by the Oscars, but we three in this studio are, and each of us is going to give a tip for tuning in on February the 24th. So start with you, Raf. Well... I think there's one very good reason why I am excited about the Oscars this year, and um, that's because the hot favourite now to win Best Picture is Roma. Alfonso Cuaron's beautiful film about a family and their servants in early 70s Mexico City. And the reason I think it's so exciting is because it's potentially the first time that a non-English language film could triumph and win Best Picture at the Oscars. This has never happened before, and I think it, it really would mark a serious change. I think it would mean that the Oscars become truly global. You've had films made by foreign directors, including Mexicans, I think four out of the past five years. But this is an, a really genuinely Mexican film in Spanish and the indigenous language Mixteco and it's not a unlike last year's uh, Shape of Water which was made by a Mexican director which is basically about a woman falling in love with a fish you know this is a truly international film and I think it it would be a, a bit of a game changer it really could make the Oscars truly global 
is this an indication of the kind of revived or and diversified academy? We know that they've been recruiting and inviting more women, more people of colour in an effort to kind of Im- improve diversity and uh, after the hashtag Oscars so white. Is, is Roma, I mean, is, are we seeing signs of this in the nominations? I think the consensus is generally that the voting members of the academy are changing, the demographic's changing. And this is reflected in what's being nominated. Having said that, you know, you look at the lineup this year, and it's really—I think it's also interesting because it's a really mixed bag. So you've got things like Roma and Black Klansman, and you know, uh, other sort of more challenging films, alongside Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a very conventional rock biopic. And you know, a star is born. and a star is born, <laughs> and uh, so you know, it is a mixed bag. So you know. It, Let's, we don't want to get too carried away, and we may end, you know, we may end up with a winner that's much more sort of conventional Hollywood. Um, but something is afoot if you look at the last few years of what's getting nominated. Last year was a bit disappointing to me because Shape of Water did seem like quite a safe choice. Um, the other thing, though, is the Netflix factor, and I know you talked about this a lot last week. But the fact is, you know, a film like this would not be in the running if it didn't have the backing of you know, something the size of Netflix, which can spend an enormous amount of money on the Oscars campaign. And that's part of the reason why it's there as well. You know, yeah, we so this is a Netflix film. It, it is the Netflix film. I mean, I'm not particularly excited about the fact that it's a Netflix film any more than if it was a Warner Brothers Universal Fox film. I'm not really interested in which company's behind it. But the fact is they've got the, the you know, they've got the the financial power to, to actually push a film like this and get it the attention it deserves and it's a beautiful film but I think you should go and see it in the cinema you can still see it in Curzon Cinemas here in the UK it's still showing in the US I know at least in New York and LA it deserves to be seen on a big screen well that's a good tip because I've only got to the 30 minute mark on this film so far and so far all that's happened is a woman has cleaned the floor and um, picked up some kids from school but yeah. it, it, it hots up after that it's a film that rewards patience mm. it really if I was trapped in a cinema then it would be exactly better. you need to be trapped in a dark room and just let it wash over you you know it's not it's not something to watch while you're on your phone and uh, cooking dinner I was going to say it's a slow film I don't know whether it is a slow film because actually there's quite kind of momentous things that happen within it but there's something quiet about it maybe the fact that it's in black and white and that um, if unlike you Raf uh, I don't speak Spanish you're reading subtitles that's that's a kind of another layer as well but but Al do persevere because this black and white brilliant. thing isn't this just a cheap route into um, looking sort of arty and stylish I mean do we really need it to be black and white I, I think it's an aesthetic choice on the part of the filmmaker I think I can think of lots of awful black and white films uh, so it's not definitely not a you know, a direct ticket to uh, great aesthetics. But in this case, I think I think it, it does work beautifully. You know, I mean, the cinematography is stunning. And it. I think part of the f- reason why it feels leisurely, it feels like it takes its time, is not only the storytelling, the way the narrative unfolds, but the cinematography, there's lots of sort of slow panning shots where you really feel like you are, and great sound design, where you really feel like you're immersed in you know, early 70s Mexico City, which I never visited, but I feel like now I can sort of conjure it up. And that's what he's tried to do because it's based on Alfonso Cuaron's own childhood to some degree, to a large degree. Yeah, I mean, just in those 30 minutes, I felt like I lived through most of the 70s in Mexico. Um, Grizz, what's your tip for enjoying the Oscars? 
Ooh, I don't know if I have a tip for enjoying the Oscars. I mean, I definitely feel quite upbeat about the nominations, actually. I think the list is better than I feared it might be. It has some duds in there, Green Book being one of them, which I saw recently. It's sort of quite disappointing, quite patronising, kind of reverse driving Miss Daisy type race story about a pianist who happens to be black in the 1960s in America and his driver, who is white, based on a true story which turns out actually not to be true. That's a disappointing film, and I'm worried that that may scoop up some awards. One film, though, which I think deals with the issue of race relations in the US, which is much better than that film, is Barry Jenkins's latest film, If Beale Street Could Talk. Sadly, not nominated for Best Picture, which I think is a travesty. But my hot tip is everyone should go and watch If Beale Street Could Talk. Not too much for Tish. What's going on? This is a sacrament. And no, I ain't lost my mind. We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fonny's baby. Should I tell you why I think it's good? We don't want a grizzle log. <laughs> <laughs> you do want a Grizzlelog. Oh, Raph, you've seen it, haven't you? Grizzlelog. Uh, <laughs> I have seen it, yeah. And I think it is a beautiful film. And I sort of asked myself why it hasn't, you know, sort of done more awards-wise. It has it, been nominated for a few awards. It has. It's been nominated for acting awards. It's been nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Regina King, who plays the mother, who I think is really incredible and might well win. It's got Best Score. The score is definitely great. Mm. And Best Adapted Screenplay, because... It's a novel by James Baldwin that Barry Jenkins himself adapted. However, I think those three nominations don't really quite do justice to how great I think this film is. Um, I'm glad that the score was recognised because the music is really incredibly beautiful, as are the visuals. But of course, what Barry Jenkins is doing with beauty is actually making a political point, which is that there's nothing unbeautiful about working class African-American life. There's nothing less beautiful about this story than any other story. And he elevates it. There's a kind of poetry about what he's doing here. You know, that beauty becomes kind of a heartbreaking beauty. Mm. It's not just sort of an afterthought or a style thing. It's something that's quite integral, I think. Yeah, and very much their love story is at the centre of it. But it feels like, you know, this should just be a love story and yet the state of American race relations is what it is that it keeps poking at their lives and sort of interfering and mm. upsetting their lives. So so you have this really beautiful, touching love story, but it's it's constantly being assaulted by everything that's going on around it. Yeah, and being completely shaped by these forces that they have no control over. So you get this weird sense that actually the narrative progression is basically the progression of the woman's pregnancy she's she's pregnant kind of early on in the film and then that develops throughout um and what they're trying to do is get him out of prison before the baby is born but because they have no control over their lives i don't think it's a spoiler to say that that doesn't happen um that these are not people who kind of are creating their own destiny in a hollywoodish way and maybe that's why to some extent this film hasn't done as well as i think it it should do I think maybe its strengths are also sort of what what what's held it back because it's 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 quite subtle and you know those a lot of those things are you mm. know happening happening sort of on the periphery. It's not a film that sort of necessarily shouts its messages 
in your face, you know. No, no, it's very quiet. Yeah, so I think low-key films, I think sometimes, that's where Roma is a, a bit of an exception because it is pretty low-key. But a lot of those films you know, traditionally just don't fare that well. Yeah, I mean, the Oscars tend to go for, like, the big showy films like Bohemian Rhapsody and A Star Is Born uh, and not so much like Beale Street. Do you think yeah. that's right, Al? Yeah, I think the Academy almost unfailingly, with the exception of Moonlight, chooses extremely obvious films in general. Um, in fact, I think the whole ceremony is unmissable because it's essentially a freak show. It's an encapsulation of basically everything that is sort of lurid and um, vulgar and cheap about society in 2019. If you just go through it all, essentially, it's, it's unrepresentative. It's hierarchicals, so there's a sort of like awful sort of class structure. It's as it's sort of soft porn, it's sort of glitz pornography. Um, there are sort of heroes and and villains, and those ridiculous acceptance speeches. That's reflective of our oversharing sort of social media culture. Some Gwyneth Paltrow wonderfully breaking down in that repulsive way that she did a few years ago. It's, so it's the, everything that's wrong about uh, it, No, today. there's more and more. There's, it's got all those completely self-defeating speeches that people make about Donald Trump. You know, it's rich, incredibly privileged people standing up lecturing people on how they should uh, live their lives. It's obviously just a lovey fest. And it's amazingly long and boring, which it also is reflective of of twenty of just life. Um, <laughs> and, and, and and they make Speak for and, yourself. and it's incompetent as well. Like they they make mistakes. Obviously, the best thing to happen at the Oscars uh, was when La La Land um, got announced as the winner, and then it wasn't the winner, and that was great. But that also reflects um, general contemporary incompetence. And I don't want to name any names, but the whole build-up of these actors incontinently celebrating their nominations on social media. I mean, obviously, when Richard E. Grant does it, it's it's lovely and charming, but basically, when anyone else does it, <laughs> um, it's just, I mean, just think, get over it. And also, like, these films, you know, it's... It, I'd be broadly agree that these, essentially, the Academy is dominated by elderly, very old white men who are not representative of the people who pay to watch these films, so I think that essentially they obviously mean something in terms of future commercial success for specific films, but also for actors who win. But in terms of, like, is this actually representative of, like, quality? I mean, please. Is Hollywood taking off its clothes and checking itself out in the mirror? Don't you think? I mean, one thing I would add to that is also it's a striptease, we should say, yeah. with no women. I mean, this is also, like, a huge scandal. I mean, pff, there's lots that's wrong with the Academy in lots of ways, but the fact that there are... No women nominated for Best Director uh, again. again. Oh, actually, well, so there was one last year, Greta Gerwig, but she was only the fifth ever. Yeah, there's only been That's... one winner ever. Yeah, It's appalling. In 90 yeah. years. It, I mean, yeah. it's, it's bizarre. OK, so to wrap up, just one film or one actor that we think should win. Raf. Yeah, well, I think it's high time they gave an Oscar to Spike Lee, who's up for Best Director and has been snubbed many times in the past. You know, and it, it'll be what he calls a makeup call. You know, he should have got it 30 years ago for Do the Right Thing, but better late than never. Well, I'd support that. One of the few films I did actually really like was Black Klansman. And we should also say Raph has interviewed Spike Lee in the paper this weekend. It's a it's a brilliant interview and uh, we'll post it on our Facebook page. Everyone should go go read it. Thanks, yeah, he, he slipped me $20 to, uh, <laughs> to give him a plug. So, uh. Well, I would like him to win as well. Um, it would have been a close-run thing if Mariel Heller had been nominated for Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is a scandal that she wasn't. Um, but given that she 
wasn't. Quite obviously, I want Richard E. Grant to finally be given the recognition that he deserves for his stupendous performance as Jack Hawk in Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, so since Beale Street hasn't been nominated for Best Film or Best Director, I'd be happy to see Roma win. I'm, I'm Team Roma. Yeah, Roma all the way. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> Raf, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode. Coming up, we have interviews with the actor Chiwetel Ejiofor, the author of the viral short story Cat Person, Kristen Ripenian, and the comedian Nish Kumar. We'd love to hear from you on the podcast. If you have someone from the world of arts and culture you'd like us to talk to... Or if there's an issue that you think we should discuss, then please get in touch. You can find us on Facebook or email us at everythingelse at ft.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We've been Grizz and Al. Everything Else is produced by David Waters. And our music is composed by Fatima.